All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He is a prolific blogger and essay writer. He goes by Bicep, V-I-S-U-P. His blog is V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W at blogspot.com, where he has a list of posts and writing that go back uh, all the way back to 2010. So he's been publishing uh, frequently on subjects uh, which he refers to as 14 realms of mind control, deep politics, sacred sacred geometry, onomatology, which I don't even know what that means, synchronicity, occult film and music. So this is uh, definitely subject matter that I am interested in. We're going to talk about a group uh, called Le Cirque. It's a European organization and kind of just branch off from that central topic. But uh, Bicep, are you there? Yes, I am. Awesome. Well, thank you for agreeing to the interview. So maybe what we can start start off at is how talk a little bit about your background yourself, how you became interested in these subjects, and why Le Cirque is an important topic for uh, viewers to understand. Uh, well, like you said, I got into this uh, at about 2010. Um, it just sort of grew out of a lot of research I had been doing for a number of years. And after a while, I thought that I had come up with a novel way to share information to this with the general public and what have you. I've kind of talked about this a little bit before, but I was sort of introduced to this whole, uh, you know, conspiracy subculture from my father, who, I mean, I can kind of remember listening to William Cooper with him back in the early 90s. My dad had been uh, in the army back in the late 50s. He, I actually originally had reported that he had been some branch of uh, maybe the Green Berets or something like that, but based on the records I was able to get from him, it seems like he was some kind of army intelligence. Uh, he was stationed at Fort Meade for a while, which was the home of the NSA, of course, and then he was also in Greenland for a little bit at a listening post there. So I think he had some kind of back, uh, background in Signet or something like that, Signals Intelligence, but... Um, you know, I don't know if he ever really went by anything that he saw in the service, but I mean, he certainly uh, had developed a very conspiratorial worldview that he uh, generally passed on to me, I suppose, in a way. So uh, that would really have been my inspiration for the blog and um, kind of the way that I got into this type of arcane research, if you will. And um, as for Le Cercle, um it's really one of the major power centers among the elites, especially uh, from the Cold War going forward. And it's it's obviously very little addressed in comparison to some of the other more well-known groups like the Bilderberg Group or uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, even though Le Cercle had that kind of influence and that power for, I mean, really close to 60, 70 years now. Gotcha. And how was Le Cercle, how was it founded? I mean, it's basically a Europe elite Europe uh, group, correct? Anti-communist? Yes, yes, yes. Well, it actually uh, began, ironically, as kind of a, a subgroup of the Bilderberg group. Uh, quite a few of the uh, early members, there was some overlap with the Bilderbergers, but it was geared towards uh, initially German and France uh, reproachment. Of course, this played into the whole you know project for what became the EU. Le Cercle was very much a major uh, proponent of European integration going back to the 1950s, and they had been involved with a lot of the kind of proto-groups and that, like the Pan-European Union and uh, the one network that Otto von Habsburg set up. But anyway, the um, the five founders of them were uh, Franz Joseph Strauss, who was a very uh, prominent politician in Germany for many years, uh, Konrad Adenauer, who was a long-serving chandler of Germany. He was the first uh, pope 
post war one uh, then there was also Giulio Andradia, who was the prime minister of Italy. He also held a lot of other crucial positions there. And then finally, from France, there was uh, Anton Panay, whose name, uh, last name Panay, is sometimes used as a reference to the circle. Sometimes it's called the Panay Circle. But anyway, gotcha. Panay was a very prominent French politician. And finally, there was the uh, uh, international man of mysteries, Jean Violet, who was really the big mover and shaker behind the circle for a lot of years. And... Uh, one thing that should probably point out about these five individuals that's really significant is that they were all affiliated with some type of very reactionary uh, Catholic organization, generally one of two, those two being uh, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, more commonly referred to as the Knights of Malta and uh, Opus Dei. So uh, Conrad and Danawa, i about 90% certain was a Maltese knight. Uh, Andradia was definitely a Maltese knight, and uh, Binet was definitely a Maltese knight. Franz Joseph Strauss was big with Opus Dei, as was Violet. And uh, quite a few of the early members were usually tied into one of these two uh, groups, most notably Otto van Habsburg and so forth. And that really was one of the distinguishing characteristics in the early years between Le Cercle and Bilderberg. Bilderberg was always much more centered around the Anglo-American establishment, maybe uh, the Netherlands to so uh, to some degree. But definitely it was kind of a, a bridge between this more Protestant, capitalistic-centric vision that uh, kind of underlined Bilderberg versus this more reactionary uh, Catholic ideology that was central to Le Cercle. Right. I mean, and Opus Dei is a very intense uh, organization. There, I think Hansen, Robert Hansen, was a member of Opus Dei, who was a spy for the Russians. I think he was an FBI agent or CIA agent here in the States. But they were garters. Yeah, he was FBI, yeah. Yeah, he was FBI right? Yeah, he was FBI, yeah. Right, so... But they were like garters, take vows. I think, I mean, if you look at some of the stuff Hansen was involved in, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, intense kind of militaristic loyalty to the Catholic Church. Absolutely. And um, on top of that, too, there's also been some uh, compelling evidence that's come out in recent years that Opus Dei was a key partner of the CIA and establishing a lot of the uh, the Gladio networks, quote unquote, across Western Europe. Of course, Gladio was actually only the name of the uh, the Italian component. They all had their individual names in each country. But for the sake of brevity, I'll just go with Gladio. Oh, gotcha. Right. And Gladio was what? Doesn't Gladio mean like the sword or something like that? Um, yeah, yes. Gladio. Uh, it was a Roman short sword that had uh, two blades to it, but essentially Gladio was uh, it was designed as a stay-behind network in most of Western Europe and some of the other nations there in the event that the Soviet Union uh, invaded, and essentially the Gladio networks would be used to wage a guerrilla war in conjunction with U.S. special forces against the Soviets. Right, so I mean these are very they, they were very much afraid of communist infiltration, and at that time, I mean the communists, what, Eastern Germany invasion of Hungary. So there definitely was, uh, you know, very looming authority, how intense the, the Soviet threat really was for some of these other states, uh, you know, is open to question. But the, uh, those, those and, and especially Italy had a very vibrant left-wing communist, you know, agitation within that country. So, you know, the, these Le Cirque and Gladio and all these things I grew up from, very conservative right-wing uh, members of those societies were there really uh, out of out of a fear of the communist menace. 
Yes, absolutely. And I mean, you know, these groups were generally selected by the CIA because they were you know, perceived as being the only really truly uh, anti-communist forces in Europe, essentially, along with the, uh, the mafia and um, the black international, the fascist international, essentially the remnants of uh, the Nazi Germany and Italian security services and what have you that were later employed by the CIA. So, yeah, these were very reactionary circles we're talking about here. Well, the one of the, so who was the CIA agent from... Uh... Uh, who had it? Who was in Italy? Who became the head of the CIA and ended up drowned in a river? I forgot what his name was, but his primary role in oh, Italy uh, was Colby. Colby, right? Colby, who ties yeah, into the Franklin cover-up, right? He was his primary in, was uh, motives or uh, you know, Aegis was anti-communism. Well, absolutely, and Colby was also uh, suspected of being a supernumerary with Opus Dei as well, and he might have been one of the. Uh, principal figures who actually recruited Opus Dei to sort of help set up this network. Interesting. So he plays into all that stuff, right? Yeah, so how? What? talk a little bit more about Le Cirque and its, its kind of uh, influence through all these societies. Well, um, it didn't really take off in the Anglosphere until uh, the late 60s, the early 70s. Uh, I believe it was Carlos Pacentia, who was a prominent in, uh, Italian industrialist who had reached out to the Rockefeller faction in the United States in the late 60s, around, I think, 67, 68. So David Rockefeller became involved uh, with the Circle around that point, along with um, several of his affiliates like Henry Kissinger, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, apparently attended meetings at some point in the 70s. But later, um, a lot of these, or at least the Rockefeller faction, became rather disillusioned because of the extremely reactionary politics that uh, they were engaged in. And at the time as well, detente was a big thing for the Rockefeller faction in the United States. This was a policy that Kissinger and uh, Brzezinski had both pursued throughout the uh, Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations to kind of normalize relations with the Soviet Union. But... Um, in addition to that, they also brought in some uh, crucial British partners in the early 70s. Uh, the link man for this was Brian Crozier. And uh, Crozier is not a well-known figure in the States, but uh, he was enormously well-connected. Uh, he had originally, I think, been recruited by French intelligence in the 1950s. He was later picked up by MI5, MI6, and he uh, eventually was hired by the CIA's uh, cultural, it was a cultural Freedom Foundation or something like that. Um, in Europe, and he essentially ran a uh, propaganda service for them during the mid-60s that was uh, financed by Richard Mellon Scaife, gotcha. and later he would found the uh, Institute for the Study of Conflict in the UK in the early 70s that would become a crucial partner uh, to the circular complex in the UK uh, during that decade and beyond. But the thing Crozier really did is... Um, he brought in a lot of these these veterans of the British Special Operations Executive into Le Cercle, and um, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, was essentially Britain's covert operations wing during the Second World War II. It was the actual agency that the OSS was modeled upon, and not MI6, as is commonly claimed. But uh, SOE was pretty much totally geared towards black ops, paramilitary operations, covert operations, this type of thing. And um, quite a few of these figures who eventually became involved with the circular complex, most notably uh, Lord Julian Amory and a few of the other members, um, such as, uh, what was his name? Oh, uh, yes, Colonel Henry Sporberg and Neil Billy McLean would uh, go on to play a huge role in essentially creating um, 
what would now be considered the modern private military company industry. Gotcha. This went back to essentially the end of um, the British Empire. Well, not the end, but the official uh, the end of the official British Empire as opposed to convert one in the early right. 60s. Right. A group of officers like Amory and what have you were opposed to this, and they essentially set up a situation in Yemen where they uh, brought in David Sterling, one of the founders of the Special Air Service, to arrange for a group of mercenaries to go into this nation and effectively topple the uh, anti or the communist forces that were in there to procure, secure the uh, natural resources there for the British government. And Sterling would go on to found uh, WatchGuard International, which was essentially considered to be the first modern PMC, private military company, and that would spawn a whole garden industry in the UK in the 70s, and many of these groups were also linked to the circle as well. Interesting. And they were all involved in all kinds of subterfuge and political overthrows throughout really the third world africa some other states is that is that uh would that be correct yes absolutely i mean amory i mean he was obsessed with trying to hold on to the natural resources in africa and um the middle east he saw this as absolutely integral to the preservation of uh british world power and he was a big proponent of essentially creating this private network that, as you're saying, would operate throughout the developing world, but especially in Africa and the Middle East to help preserve some of these uh, resources. Gotcha. I mean, one of my favorite movies is, have you ever seen Dogs of War with uh, Mike, uh, was it Christopher, Christopher Walken? Walken right. Yeah. Great ending. Yes, yes. I don't yes, want to yes. ruin it, but one of the best endings of all things, but basically a private military contractor out of the UK with, uh, intel- I think the guy he's talking to, is somebody probably like Amory, Julian Amory. I can't remember the name of the writer. What was his name of Dogs of War? But it referenced... Oh, it was, was Frederick Forster or something Frederick like For, that. Frederick uh, Forsyth, another Brit. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, so, I mean, those things were definitely happening uh, much more so. into today, you have Blackwater, Opera, and American uh, Burned by Prince, who actually popped up in the recent Mueller investigation um, because he traveled with some guy to the Seychelles. There was a Seychelles meeting, but Prince is definitely an operator operating in this kind of same PMC vein. Well, yes, absolutely. And I mean, it's, I mean, one of the big uh, uh, PMCs currently active now in the UK is Aegis, uh, Aegis Defense Services. And Aegis was actually the company that the uh, US coalition, uh, was a coalition provisional authority hired in Iraq, uh, I believe in 2003, 2004, to, oversee all of the private contractors that were in Iraq at the time. I mean, they ran an intelligence service and what have you. And the founder of Aegis, Tim Spicer, was awarded this contract for Aegis about a year after he had met uh, with Le Cirque. Wow. So the so Le Cirque is still, still potent and still operating um, in Europe. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, now it doesn't really have the Catholic flavor that it used to have. It's really was taken over by the British uh, in the 1980s. Amory became the chairman in the 1980s. Another chairman was Crozier. And I believe every chairman since then has been uh, uh, British, if I'm not mistaken. But interestingly, despite the fact that uh, Le Cercle was very a very big proponent of European integration uh, throughout the Cold War era. They've actually become one of the leading organizations of European skepticism in uh, recent years. Interesting. So they, they're kind of, they're not fully exiting, but uh, they, they don't think the experiment is working out? 
Yes, yes, I would say that would be essentially correct. Um, another interesting thing, too, about the British members that uh, you probably would be interested in knowing, Amory was uh, actually the son of Leopold Amory, who was uh, a major figure in Quigley's Round Table group. In fact, he was apparently who took it over after uh, Lord Milner died in the 1920s. And um, another prominent member of this roundtable group was a guy named Lord Lothian, and eventually one of Lothian's descendants, I think it was maybe a nephew or something like that, became a chairman of Le Socle uh, during this past decade. Fascinating. Yeah, so you see them just still, uh, their talent pools coming from the same, same, uh, you know, wish of same well, so to speak, same familial wells. Which actually, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, so Le Cirque's, you know, it's still operating as, I mean, how, wh- how influential is it still other than, you know, working through these private military con- PMPCs, what other, are they involved in propaganda and, uh, sub, subterfuge on kind of working against left-wing groups? Yes, I mean, I would imagine absolutely so. I mean, especially with the situation in Europe, of course, it's very hard to really determine the extent of what it's been up to in recent years because of the extreme uh, secrecy you know, surrounding the group. But it was uh, definitely a major factor behind pre-exit and what have you. Brexit, excuse me. Gotcha. And, um, you know, I imagine it would probably still be involved in a lot of these other, you know, I mean, uh, anti-leftist agendas that have been played out in Europe in recent years. But again, there's unfortunately not a lot of information available on that for obvious reasons. And you, um, in the title of your blog, uh, you have them also as part of the pedocracy. Why do you have that statement that they're part of this kind of global pedophile movement or whatever? Well, they actually seem to be uh, at one of the forefront organizations probably in managing it. Um, Quite a few of the members were linked to these kind of elite pedophile circles in the United States and the UK and in Belgium. Um, It's a bit of a broader topic here, but I guess to go over a few of the highlights, um, one of the big American partners in Le Socle by the 70s was uh, William Casey, the famed CIA director during Reagan's administration. Casey was himself, of course, linked to the uh, Franklin scandal. He was apparently on good terms with Craig Spence, who was also a close associate of Larry King. And uh, curiously, all three of these men also appear to have been close to uh, Roy Cohn, uh, Donald Trump's uh, infamous political mentor slash attorney. So there's definitely a potential link uh, via Casey to the Franklin scandal. So, uh, well, he was, uh, I mean, he was giving UK, advice. He was giving advice to the writer, writer of the Franklin conspiracy, right? Like, stay away from this. Didn't he tell? The, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the the author was John DeCamp. He was friends with DeCamp because they both worked in uh, Operation in Vietnam. It was uh, Phoenix program. Phoenix program. Yeah, thanks. You know, you're you're thinking of Colby and not William Casey. Okay, then I got a mistake. So I got Casey, mixed up. I saw. Yeah, I apologize. It's okay. No problem. But Casey and Colby were both uh, involved with the circle. So okay. I mean, he would have Colby would have definitely been in a position to know. That's for sure. Okay, well, let's let's but, get back um, to Casey then. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
it's okay. It's okay. So yeah, I mean, Casey, uh, like I said, Casey was very close to Craig Spence and there's been, you know, allegations that have come out in recent years that he was also involved in a DC, um, prostitution ring. I believe it was the one that, uh, his name, Henry Vincent, I believe had been the, uh, quote unquote, madam of, it was a homosexual ring and, uh, Spence was tied into it. Uh, Casey was tied into it. Larry King had been tied into it. And, uh, Vincent had reported that they had repeatedly tried to get him to procure underage boys for them. And he had steadfastly refused to his credit. But, um, Casey definitely seems to have been a big player on the U S end in this kind of stuff. And, um, his connection to Le Circle is definitely very eye-opening in terms of some of the other members. Remarkable. So, so um, okay, so, going in. Sorry, continue. I apologize. Okay, okay. So going into the um, the British links, essentially, there have been at least three Circle chairmen who have been accused of pedophilia. That would include Amory himself, uh, Norman Lamont, and Julian Aitken, who were uh, chairmen during the uh, 90s, respectively. Lamont was actually going into the early zeros as well. Amory was also apparently a good friend of uh, Lord uh, Mountbatten, I believe, who has also been extensively linked to pedophilia in the UK. Um, Another person who was quite likely a circling member was uh, Leon Britton. He had been the uh, House Home Secretary under Thatcher's um, regime. He was one of the individuals who had apparently uh, worked to suppress the Westminster pedophile dossier, which had come out during the early 80s. Essentially, this was a list of names of uh, suspected pedophiles in Thatcher's government. Britain was later revealed to also have been one of the individuals who was linked to this network. So he was the one basically tasked with investigating a network that he was quite likely involved with. Involved with, wow, uh, amazing, yeah. Another one was Keith Joseph. This was um, Thatcher's Secretary of State for Education and Science, which obviously has some kind of disturbing connotations when you consider his involvement in pedophilia. But right. he had worked with uh, he had worked with Crozier on psychological operations um, during the election years in 1987. Uh, another one was Peter Morrison, who was Thatcher's uh, paramount. Uh, she was some kind of parliamentary secretary, but he had been linked a lot to pedophilia during the uh, Thatcher years, and he was close to Amory and Aikens. Uh, another interesting figure was uh, Julian Lewis. He had been involved with Crozier and uh, his Six Eye network, which was essentially a private intelligence network that Crozier had set up. This featured some heavyweights from the U.S., including uh, General Vernon Walters, who was a member of the Knights of Malta, and General Richard Stilwell. But anyway, uh, Lewis was actually a accused of um, essentially suppressing uh, uh, this investigation a magazine called Scallywag had done in the late 80s, early 90s into uh, links that the British establishment had to pedophilia. They had, they had compiled an extensive amount of documents on this. Lewis had essentially sued uh, Scallywag for defamation. He was able to seize the files, and then he would uh, essentially release the files that were related to the Labour Party while suppressing those linked to the party and then finally um there was the case of the sue Ryder charity uh sue Ryder actually was they had a hospice uh that uh catered essentially to dying children and uh, jimmy seville was accused of uh, molesting several kids at this hospice in the 70s and sue Ryder's charities had also been linked to several other curious events to say the least but it had been founded uh or at least uh, partly sponsored by henry sporberg who was a circlet member so 
Yeah, there was. It seems rather evident that the Circlet was very aware of these pedophile networks that were going on in the UK, and I suspect on some level they have been using this information to steer the direction essentially the British government was going in beginning in the 70s. Gotcha. So it was used like a blackmail operation? Yes, 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 essentially. Um, I mean, one of the first casualties actually was probably Edward Heath. He had been a uh, conservative prime minister during the, I believe it was the early 70s, but he was essentially uh, considered to be too soft on communism, but the circular complex, and they had been circulating allegations that he was both a homosexual and a pedophile. And this had led to his government being brought down and replaced by the Labour government of Harold Wilson. Wilson had just inspired an all-out assault um, by a lot of these you know, reactionary factions in the UK, and that eventually paved the way for the Iron Lady to assume the uh, prime ministership. Interesting. Wow. So they're just kind of like circling around and dictating policy. And you're saying Le Cirque was also involved in the Belgium pedophile scandal? Yes, yes, yes. I was just getting to that. So, again, this is another interesting organization. It was called uh, the Academia European des Sciences Politicus. I believe that's how it's pronounced, but probably not. For the sake of um, embarrassing myself with this pronunciation, I'm going to refer to it as the Academy. This was what a lot of um, people affiliated referred to it as. But it was founded in 1968 by a Belgian named uh, Florimond Demon. And it was based in uh, Brussels. Now, it would eventually, it would essentially become a major network for the Circular Complex. Essentially, it brought together members of the Circular and the Bilderberg Group with um, a lot of less reputable elements, shall we say. Uh, one of the first organizations in this regard that it uh, came into contact with was the Gentle Press, which had been founded by a former OS, OAS officer. Officer uh, Yves Gillian, more commonly known as Yves Garen Sarek. Garen Sarek had the uh, dubious nickname of God's Terrorist. He essentially uh, has been linked to numerous acts of terrorism across uh, the European continent for throughout the 60s and the 70s. Uh, he was deeply involved in assisting a lot of the Italian neo-fascist groups waves the strategy of tension in Italy during the 1970s. Uh, the Gender Press was officially sponsored by... Um, the Portuguese government under Salazar. It had an office in uh, Lisbon. It was used to conduct assassinations and other acts of terrorism um, in the colonies that Portugal still had in Africa. It was later hired uh, by the United States, ironically, to help assist uh, in the suppression of Guatemala in the late 60s, early 70s, where reportedly 50,000 people were killed. And later, Jenner uh, operatives ended up in Chile, where they also assisted uh, Pinochet and his regime there. So... Mm-hmm. They were very much at the forefront of right-wing terrorism throughout uh, the Cold War era. Uh, Also, there were members of the P2 that were directly involved in the Academy, and several members of the Academy were involved with a group known as the P7, which allegedly was one of the major um, sources of funding for the P2. P2 Uh, Brian Crozier himself. For people who don't know, P2 stands for Propaganda Due, a high Masonic organization in Italy which produced, what was the guy, what was the most recent prime minister is under, uh, he's in, he's basically. Oh, it's, it starts with a B. Uh, Berlusconi, right. So I Ber- can picture it in my well, The Berlusconi story is actually a fascinating aspect of P2 and its power because one of the 
the reasons why Berlusconi was able to become such a titan within the Italian uh, country is because he received the loans through the head of the P2 at a uh, interest rate that was much lower than the standard uh, public rate. So he was able to leverage these cheap this cheap money to really outmaneuver any other business person in Italy and purchase things at a much uh, much easier rates that are easy were easier to pay back. And that's how Berlusconi took over. And those issues are still going. I mean, P2's power is still being felt in Italy today. There was I mean, there was recently a poisoning of a witness against Berlusconi. Uh, her name was uh, Emane Fadil. Have you heard of her? Uh, no. Yeah, so he was, Berlusconi is involved in these bunga bunga parties, which were like basically eyes wide shut parties. And uh, really? it's still going, That's yeah, still ongoing. But she was uh, poisoned by uh, heavy metal. She had some very strange poisoning and died. So uh, really pretty suspicious death associated with Berlusconi, P2, very hard right Italian politicians yeah. and uh an interesting thing is uh based on my research it actually seems like that uh p2 was not the only one of these lodges there was also reportedly uh p1 in france and p3 in spain uh p3 also would sort of uh tie into the saga of lasocla i could get to that in a minute here because that kind of uh ties into what you're talking about with the stealth banking practices that were essentially right. practiced in italy at the time but anyway and then there was p7 um the institute i just mentioned here that was linked to the academy p7 was essentially uh belgium's propaganda lodge essentially gotcha. so i mean he had some very, very, I mean, heavy hitters here, people that were deeply involved in terrorism uh, throughout the European continent and beyond during this era. Now, as with the charges of pedophilia, uh, there were two very noteworthy members of the Academy in this regard. One was uh, Paul Vedenant, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to refer to him as a, a BDB. That was his nickname in the Belgian press, BDB. He was the defense minister through much of the 70s, and then he eventually became Belgium's prime minister uh, from 1978 to 1979. And another one of his close affiliates in the academy was the Black Baron, Benat de Bonnevoisen. De Bonnevoisen was uh, the son of a founder of the Bilderberg Group. Now, both of these men were eventually linked to the pedophile networks in Belgium during the 90s uh, when the Detroux Fair was exposed. Detroit, for right. Those of you unaware, Mark Detroux. Detroux, yes, yes. Mark Detroux was um, well, he's usually described as a serial killer. Essentially, he had abducted um, young women, many of them who were minors across the nation, and had kept them in these rather elaborate, almost dungeon-like um, you know, areas that he had in his house and he tortured and raped them in these uh, areas. And of course, in the 90s, there were allegations that he had been procuring women for a prominent French or excuse me, Belgian gangster who had links to these uh, kind of clandestine fascist networks right. in uh, Belgium at the time. And this had, uh, had encouraged a lot of uh, victims of these networks to come forward and they had started name names and two of the most prominent ones were VDP and Bon Voyosen. And VDP had actually been linked to these pedophile networks as far back as the early 80s. Um, one of the major neo-fascist groups in Belgium at the time was an organization known as the uh, Westland New Post. 
and it was uh, founded and overseen by a man named Paul Latinius. Paul Latinius had been involved with the Belgian security services, but curiously, at the age of 17, he had been recruited by the American Defense Intelligence Agency. This is the uh, the military's principal intelligence service, and he was also trained at Fort Bragg, which is where most of our the United States' elite special operations forces are trained. So he was essentially also an agent of American intelligence as well as an agent of uh, Belgian intelligence. He had eventually gone on to found the uh, Westland New Post, which was linked to um, a series of supermarket shootings in Belgium in the 1980s. Essentially, gunmen walked into uh, supermarkets and some other crowded areas and just started randomly opening, firing at uh, people. Quite a few women and children were fortunately wounded or killed in these uh, instances. But anyway, Latinius had uh, compiled a insurance policy that's become uh, that's been dubbed the Pnut file. Um, essentially, this was a collection of prominent Belgians that he was aware of and had compiled evidence that were engaged in these pedophile networks. But it did not do Latinius a lot of good. He committed suicide under rather dubious circumstances in the early 80s. But this was essentially the first time that... Uh, the references to these elite uh, pedophile networks in Belgium had come out, and they would rather be they would later be expanded upon greatly in the nineties. Gotcha. So they've had their own suspicious pedophile networks, Belgium, UK. Yeah. So we're going all the, with with connections going all the way to the top, and the whole Dutro affair really did go to the top. There were prosecutors who were let go. The investigation was undermined. There was actually a, a huge for that country, a huge protest that was like three or four hundred thousand people walked out in the street. They were outraged by yeah, all the nation's the, capital. Yeah, I mean, just a really amazing story that that uh, unfortunately doesn't get enough coverage. But I mean, at least in parapolitical circles, people are looking at. It, but uh, it is an incredible story, and 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 Dutro looked like he was connected, like he was networked. He was traveling outside of Bel. Uh, they have. I think they had records of him traveling outside of Belgium, you know, frequently. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, I mean, it really seems like when you sort of, I mean, step back a little bit and look at the broader connections, Le Cercle was really at the forefront of these, you know, elite pedophile networks. I don't know if they were actively, you know, creating them or if they were simply aware of them, but it seems like they had accumulated a rather extensive amount of knowledge of these networks by the 1970s, certainly by the 1980s, and I suspect that played a, a major role in the rise to prominence during this time frame. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, um, what else about Le Cirque should we cover that we we haven't really uh, looked into? Well, I'll get into the uh, the sniffer plane scandal, actually. That's okay. kind of an interesting little anecdote uh, that kind of plays into some of you talking about the shady financial dealings in Italy. Okay. So um, this had its origins uh, going back to a company that was founded in 1965 in Geneva by... Uh, I believe an individual named Odio Benosli or something like that. He was a Italian TV repairman who proclaimed himself to be a nuclear physicist. And a Belgian count named Elaine de Vill- um, Villegas, I believe. But anyway, um, Elaine was the uh, uh, son-in-law of uh, the founder of the, excuse me, the brother-in-law of the founder of the Academy, Florimond de Man. So he was very tied into the circular complex, and he had eventually um, caught the eye of Jean Violet. He was the Frenchman who was a longtime chairman of the circle, and he was generally considered to be the 
big mover and shaker in it throughout the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. But anyway, Elaine believed that he and his uh, Italian compatriot had developed a way to detect fresh water underneath the uh, earth, essentially. They had pitched this ideal uh, to the Spanish government, and they had received some backing from um, the government from individuals that were linked to Opus Dei. But uh, the technology was bogus and nothing came of it. So they went back to the drawing board, refined it, and then claimed that they had developed a way to sense oil that was underground. Essentially, this device could be mounted to an airplane, hence the name Cipher Airplanes. It could fly around the countryside and it could undercover pockets of oil that were hidden in the earth. And remarkably, they were able to uh, convince the government of South Africa initially to sponsor this, which... You know, I mean, it produced nothing. And then later, through the uh, assistance of Violet, they were able to get uh, ELF, which was uh, France's state-owned oil company, to sponsor the research. And ELF put a considerable amount of money up for this. It would have been the equivalent, I believe, of about $70 million uh, in U.S. currency in the 1970s, wow. which was a pretty generous chunk of change, to put it mildly, at this time. And much of the money... Um, for this project was routed to a Swiss bank that was owned by uh, Banco Ambrosiano, which was the bank that Roberto Calvia uh, controlled. He was, of course, the uh, famous uh, banker for the Vatican. He was named or nicknamed God's Banker. He was also a member of the P2. Uh, and essentially most of the money for this that had come from the French taxpayers was siphoned off into this uh, accounts, and it was basically lost. And it also appears to have contributed to the collapse of the uh, Banco Occidental in Spain, which was another Opus Dei-linked bank uh, right. that was actually featured the uh, Grandmaster of the P3 as the board of directors. But uh, there's a lot of speculation that the Sniffer plane uh, subterfuge had been carried out essentially to extort this money from the French government and from these other sources that was then being used by the Vatican to uh, finance the Polish uh, solidarity movement that was then beginning to take off, which right. became a major headache for the Soviet Union in this time frame. Right, so the money really is never lost. But, it's lost in quotes, right? Like, uh, we lost it, but yeah. Some exactly. Calvi ended up under like a, a bridge in London, uh, and he was... Blackfriars Blackfriars Bridge upside down in the uh, the tarot symbol of the hangman, correct? Yes, yes. He had his uh, pockets stuffed with stones and what have you. And the uh, the selection of the Blackfriars Bridge was quite interesting as well because um, I don't know if you've ever seen any images of the P2 members when they were in their Masonic regalia, but it's, it's a bit different than what you would normally see in a Masonic lodge. Essentially, it looks like... Um, a black Klansman's outfit. I mean, in the sense that instead of being a white sheet, it's a black sheet. It's essentially like a black uh, Klansman's hood, essentially. And um, because of this, they reportedly refer to themselves as black friars in their meetings. So it's rather interesting in that sense that uh, Calvia was hanged uh, underneath Blackfriars Bridge in the UK. Right, so it's some kind of inside job. Was Isn't P2 in Italy located in Genoa, too? It's not in uh, Rome, right? No, no, uh, you, yes, you're correct. It wasn't in Rome. Um, I, I feel like maybe it was Tuscany where Tuscany, the first right. lodge was or something. I can't. But yeah, I think it was Andriotti was the big head of P2 who was like a, almost a Luciferian figure when they interviewed him 
Like, uh, I remember seeing an interview with that guy, the head of the P2, and it was like, the guy had incredible power, man. It's really an amazing story, that whole P2 Lodge. Well, the official head was Gele, uh, Lucio Gele, but yes, Andradia was reputed to be the, it was, but Andradia was reputed to be the actual head of the P2, at least this was what Calvi alleged, and as I said earlier, Andradia was also a founding member of the Sokla. Right, so he's like one of those kind of global players. I mean, and so they're involved in banking, I mean, that's a whole other aspect of it, is that they are involved in in financing, uh, you know, you just see some pieces of it, but it's clear that they're financing uh, interested par- parties who are similar to them, right? Financing their ascent or whatever. Well, absolutely. I mean, it seems like, I mean, going into the 80s, a lot of the money that was being siphoned off by the affiliates of the P2 was probably also being used to fund uh, essentially what became the death squads in Central America and possibly also the Muzadim in Afghanistan as well. And this is essentially part of the reason for this, you know, kind of creative financial practices, which left a lot of these banks destitute. The Vatican and uh, La Circla and a lot of these other organizations could not, you know, directly fund a death squad, for instance, in El Salvador or something like that. So they needed another way to go about doing this. And uh, it seems effectively that they came into arrangements uh, with the mafia where a certain amount of money would be laundered through the Vatican Bank and it would be skimmed off by this, you know, kind of La Circla slash P2 complex and it would be put towards their own political ends essentially and this way the respectable players in these endeavors would essentially uh, you know keep their hands clean effectively right i mean they really were kind of like i mean people bandy about the term fascists and you know scream the word fascist but i think it'd be accurately applied to you know the circular complex would you agree with that no absolutely Absolutely. I mean, I think specifically uh, clerical fascism would probably be the best way to describe it because of the typically uh, close relationship they've had to the reactionary Catholic uh, right, which seems to have continued somewhat. I mean, in the UK, I mean, there were other fascist networks, of course, involved. And I mean, you can even see that to some extent in Italy with the Gladio networks. Of course, there were a lot of the the followers of Julius Evola, the prominent philosopher. Right. For an occultist um, who were also tied up in the P2 network. And Evelo, of course, was fanatically anti Christian. Uh, he was a pagan, obviously. But uh, there was still, you know, I mean, a certain degree of overlap between these groups, despite the fact that they uh, had some very uh, divergent views on certain topics. Well, for people who haven't heard his name of Judas Evola, E V O L A, can you, do you know any anything about him in detail or uh, what his writings were like? Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I've actually read quite a few of Agola's books. Uh, I became really interested in him several years before um, he was, uh, I guess, name-dropped by Steve Bannon, uh, and then which was later reported by the New York Times a few years ago. But Evola was really uh, one of the cornerstone philosophical thinkers in reinventing fascism in the post-war years. Uh, during the Second World War, it appears that Evola had been recruited into the SD, which was the Foreign Intelligence Service. Well, should, excuse me. There were two SDs. There was the domestic one for Nazi Germany, and then there was the foreign one, which essentially became Nazi Germany's equivalent of the CIA. Evola worked uh, potentially with the foreign one. 
but towards the end of the war, he was involved in a bizarre project where he was essentially studying uh, Freemasonry and other subversive occultic secret societies uh, on behalf of the SS. And there's some speculation, most notably by uh, the great Kevin Coogan, that he was developing a kind of pan-European ideology that could be used by the Black International in the aftermath of the Second World War to reinvigorate the fascist cause, if you will. And it seems like this was very much the case uh, as to what he was doing in the post-war years. Of course, he, he became just an enormous influence in a lot of these uh, very extremist right-wing groups. And it seems like he had even established ties with the CIA to some capacity as well to continue promoting this ideology. And uh, the thing about Ebola, uh, pretty much every major Italian neo-fascist terrorist at some time or other had fallen under the spell of Ebola. Um, probably the most notable one was, uh, I believe it was uh, Pino Ritana or something like that. He was the founder of the New Order, and the New Order was essentially the uh, principal organization that was used um, for the Gladio-linked terrorism in Italy uh, throughout the 1970s. The founder of this group was a huge, huge fan of Ebola. So, I mean, it was just, it was a credible amount of influence that he had on a lot of these networks. Of course, you know, we're not really privy to a lot of it um, in America and the UK because Ebola's writings were not translated into English, I believe, uh, widely until the 90s, if I remember correctly. But uh, in a lot of uh, the European countries, especially the Catholic ones like France, uh, Italy, I mean, he had a huge, huge influence. And uh, it seems like in this day and age, he may well be even more influential now than he was during his own lifetime yeah it's amazing i actually there's a lot of parallels between evola and crowley both like aristocratic highborn uh, into magic all kinds of esotericism anti-christian into drugs mountaineers you know world, uh, world religion meeting of east and west evola really is something else i mean kind of uh very similar but uh and, you know and you could well, you can you can make questions about how well there was some influence Crowley is politically instead of merely as an occultist but how his political influence is uh it's a good, very good question but Evola very fascinating character well definitely in the comparisons between Crowley and Evola were very interesting too because i mean they obviously were inspired by a lot of the same sources but i mean it seems like they came to some pretty different interpretations of course my understanding with Crowley and I'll preface by saying Crowley's not really my area of expertise I mean I know something about Crowley you pretty much have to to you know go into this kind of research but uh, I'm much more familiar with Volai but um my understanding essentially of Crowley he saw himself as a prophet who was restoring the study if you will you have to repeat that that kind of came in out I think that's you done. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Let's see. Oh, we made it forty five minutes. Let's try again.